I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, Ghostbusters, 1984. So if you've purchased a Halloween novelty album in the past 30 years, then you already know the theme song. Yeah. You mean Monster Mash? Oh, yes. No. <laughs> Monster Mash, the movie. No, we're, we're talking... Dead Man's Party by Oingo Boingo? Is that on Halloween albums now? Oh, sure it is. Oh, anything that has spooky in the title. So, of course, we're talking about 1984's Ghostbusters, directed by Ivan Reitman with a screenplay by Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Um, 80s classic. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'd be shocked if anyone hasn't seen this movie. I, I think the I think the existence of a second inferior sequel that probably played on network and cable TV thousands of times in syndication, as well as, uh, you know, the, the remake in 2016, which blew the internet up. I don't think anyone doesn't know who Ghostbusters are, the Ghostbusters are. My son, who's never seen a single, like, modicum of them considered going as a Ghostbuster for Halloween. I don't know why. The cultural osmosis. Yeah, they're just iconic, obviously. Yeah, it, yeah. So, of course, we're joined in the studio by our good friend, past guest. He's a blogger, author, and host of the Spilled Milk podcast, Matthew Amster Burton. Oh, it is so good to be back. Uh, we're glad to have you. So, uh, Matthew... I, I also have to say, just to get this out of the way, yeah. uh, if it weren't for... Matthew, we would not have had the the beautiful experience of Fast and the Furious, which, if you haven't heard, listened to, I think is probably one of the best we've ever done, and probably one of my favorite panels. Did you see Fast Eight? I think we did. I think we did that show before Fast. We 8 did came that out. show before Fast Eight, so we could probably kids well, stay tuned for our our fun size episode. We'll <laughs> probably be talking about the fate, fate of the Furious. But yes, I just wanted to say thank you, Matthew. Oh, you're welcome. It, this is my mission in life to just bring bring the gospel of of uh, Dominic Toretto to the people. <laughs> oh. oh, so uh, Matthew, one of the things that we want to do at the beginning of this episode is we're talking about an '80s classic. We're talking about a movie that I don't know I can be objective about. Mm-hmm. We're talking about Ghostbusters. So if you could sum it up for the people in our audience that might have been born after 1996, <laughs> in a paragraph or two, what is Ghostbusters about? All right. So I think I think this might be overly objective, but we'll see. It's 1984. Three white guys who definitely would have been hired as Columbia professors team up to destroy and or sexually harass every entity in New York City. Using their black coworker Winston as a human shield, so you can't describe all of the Ghostbusters as lazy, misogynistic white dudes. When somebody asks if you're a god, you say yes. Oh, oh, that's very good. That's very good. So now, there's there's an, there are angles there that uh-huh. I could not have anticipated. <laughs> this was kind of rough, guys. Yeah. Um, on rewatch. On rewatch. Yeah. So I think the last time I rewatched this was maybe six years ago. Mm. The world has changed more in six years than I could have anticipated. Yeah, this is a movie that brings up what I like to call the trope of the 1980s charming, philandering doofus. Yes. There's a lot of that in there. Uh, Venkman is a guy that you think he might be in prison. That's exactly that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I mean, there's a lot about the, the about Dr. Peter Venkman. Uh, one is that 
he acts like a con artist, even when he's not scamming somebody. That's true. That that this is not new behavior because you see the movie open up um, with the original with the characters after we have that sort of prologue at the library and the ghost. That Venkman is essentially screwing up intentionally a scientific experiment on ESP to hit on a female student that's going to the college that he teaches at. Yep. And that he is inte- <laughs> he is he is torturing another student uh, with electric shocks uh, when he gets questions to what's on the other side of this card wrong, and even shocks him when he gets one right. Yeah, so so he can maybe sleep with this nineteen year old, and we're supposed to think this is adorable. <laughs> yeah, what was it that they said uh, on the director's commentary? It was that was taken from the Milgram experiment, which was a classic, which was to show if people would actually, if instructed hurt another person by electric shocks. And this scene was their Mil- Milgram experiment to see whether or not the audience would, would sympathize <laughs> with a guy who is so cruel as to just shock someone for the fun of it. But this is not a new character uh, that we've seen in movies in the 1980s. You can watch something like Caddyshack or yep. Animal yeah. House. Yeah. And you see behavior that really should end with like an episode of Law & Order. Mm-hmm. Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah. This is stuff that... This isn't going to be in a movie if it had been made in 2017, where it is in 2000 or 1984. Yeah, I mean, the question is just whether it's going to cross over into SVU territory or not. <laughs> the interesting thing with uh, the, the question of Dr. Peter Venkman, uh, Bill Murray, of course, and the consent is that he's actually pretty good in the scene where he is confronted with uh, Dana, who has, at this point in the movie, been possessed by the the gatekeeper. Yes. And uh, thinking he's the key master, which is the other half of the equation to summon an elder god to destroy New York and the world, um, they have to sleep together. That's what's heavily implied. Oh, definitely. She throws herself at him, and he doesn't go for it. He's obviously tempted, but doesn't go for it. Right. However, he does douse her with Thorazine, which he brought on his date. <laughs> yep, just in case. <laughs> so there, there are elements of that, and I think... It's really the strength of Bill Murray's performance that doesn't ruin this movie. Yeah, I mean, he he brings it 110% all of the time, even when maybe he should dial it back. Yeah, so I mean, and then the, I think the other half of this movie that really makes it work is that, uh, at least on this angle, is that Sigourney Weaver as Dana Barrett is awesome. Yes. And that she's this character who sees right through Peter Venkman. And kind of just goes, oh my god! And at one point, he's he's like hitting on her at his at her apartment. I guess he's ostensibly scanning it for ghosts with equipment that he honestly doesn't seem to understand what it is or what nope. it's doing or what he's looking for. Uh, he's mostly just like scoping it out the same way like a burglar would when you're like, I'm going to come uh-huh. back here later, and I'm gonna I'm basically scouting. Yeah, th- using using a piece of equipment that looks sort of like an erect fishing pole. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's attached to like this squeezy thing. Uh-huh. That it would be attached to like you know like something that you would take your blood pressure with. I'm exactly. not exactly yes. sure what he's doing because that's the fun part about Venkman is that you really don't know until he sees that library ghost at the beginning if he even believes this thing or just yeah, sees right. it as an angle to get laid. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but what I kind of love is that you get this pushback from Dana that Sigourney Weaver isn't having it. And he's going into this routine that I'm guessing probably works sometimes. And she's like, you know, you know what? We have the exact same problem. He goes, yes, we do have the exact same problem. You. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I, I fucking love that. Yeah, it's great. 
And I think that, and we've talked about this before, this is the strength of Sigourney Weaver in a movie. Yeah. yeah. That Sigourney Weaver, we saw this in Galaxy Quest, we see this in a lot of things, where she has an ability to ground movies that have weird, absurd elements in them and treat it like drama. Yes. And I think that's what I think makes this movie really work, is that I think this movie gets mislabeled as a comedy. Oh, I want to hear this. Um, I, I mean, think... it certainly is a genre movie. Yeah. It certainly is a horror movie with comedic elements. It's not quite like Evil Dead. No. You know, it's, or, or Army of Darkness. Well, yeah, it's the, not it... quite that level of, well, it's definitely a horror movie. There's some crazy gore and some scares. And also, it ha- there happens to be a character that's funny in it. It doesn't have the gore of like Evil Dead 2, but it's less of a slapstick Three Stooges thing than Evil Dead 2. Yeah. Evil Dead 2 exists. Even though there's, some, there's a lot of Three Stooges in this movie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think this is a movie where, instead of Evil Dead 2, where it's kind of cartoon physics, that the movie itself is doing things in a bizarre, crazy, hyper-non-realistic way, I think Ghostbusters is a movie that has what I'm starting to call diegetic humor. Okay. (laughs) Where it's not the the screenplay or the plot or any of the side characters or the universe itself sort of forcing this into a comedy realm. It's that these characters are reacting to a serious movie in a comedic way. Okay, I'll buy that. That I think you really could take all of the jokes and the Saturday Night Live SCTV cast out of Ghostbusters, and I think it would mostly still work. I don't know if I agree. So I I think the supporting characters are the soul of this movie. Because, I mean, first of all, let's start with William Atherton, because William Atherton is the best thing in any movie you put him in, in my opinion. Um the, the line I laughed at the hardest uh, when I watched this movie last week was uh, when he refers to the Ghostbusters as consummate snowball artists, <laughs> yes. which is not and, – and says it as if this is a phrase you've heard before, which it's not. <laughs> well, I mean, it, there's Your always Honor, that... These gentlemen are consummate snowball artists. <laughs> there's always that thing. It's like uh, uh, the, the character of Walt's wife from Breaking Bad mm-hmm. is that the actress – uh, was was saying that people hated her and people on the street would express her their hatred of her because she was such a bitch because she was so I don't, I don't know basically she, was a, she got in the way of Walt right. having free reign to do terrible things right. exactly and but but this is be, not not because the 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 actor themselves is bad but because they've created a character that has evoked such a strong reaction in you and that is extremely difficult to do especially to be an an antagonist and William Atherton is the smuggest smarmiest like guy possible he's even more he seems even more smarmy and ridiculous as the foil of Venkman, right? Oh, yeah. Because they're, they're on either side of each other. Just Oh, from... yeah. But I think the thing to, the, with him is that let's get on the table that Will Atherton's Walter Peck of the EPA is an asshole. Yes. <laughs> this is a guy who goes into a situation with a smug, condescending attitude that Venkman picks up right away. He's like the crusty dean in Animal House, where uh-huh. this is a guy who's here to well, mess with plays, your fun. He plays the crusty dean in Real Genius. Yes, sort of. he is. Yeah. I mean, some, some <laughs> actors just... professor. They put off that vibe. Yes. It's like, this is a guy that is the foil for the main character. And here's the question, though. Is Walter Peck, despite the fact that he's an asshole, is he wrong? It's it's a tough question. Like if if he weren't uh, working for the EPA, it would be easier to say. <laughs> like uh, it, you know, his role would be a, would be a little clearer. Like they they want us to root against the EPA in this movie, which right. uh, from from a 2017 perspective is kind of hard to do. Um, I don't know. <laughs> 
Because he goes well, into the office and he's actually pretty polite to Venkman at first. That uh, <laughs> yes. he's, He comes across as a snob. He's obviously mm-hmm. a wet blanket. But Venkman immediately starts pushing this guy's buttons by shaking his hand that has slime that on has it. slime on it, yes. And then rubbing it off on his shoulder, on his suit. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. <laughs> it's pretty great. That Venkman just sort of knows when he's dealing with a stiff and immediately goes into the troll range. And he's just like, yep. okay, time to fuck with well, this guy. That, that that actually is Venkman's sort of role in the trilogy, right? In the trio, rather, of, of the, the three guys. There's there's uh you know Venkman's the mouth and Ray is the heart and uh Egon's, Egon's is the, the brain Egon, Egon's the brain so he of course is the one that has to interface with the public um like the whole that I love that whole bit about the first ghost they catch in the Biltmore hotel mm-hmm. um they're they're doing hand signals between each other deciding on the spot how much to charge them <laughs> they're yes. just going uh wait a minute what's the you know and they're you know putting up two fingers for $2000 like he is the one who that's his role, and he realizes that the two other guys are so hopelessly aloof. awkward. Yeah, they're so uh, so hopelessly aloof that they would never be able to survive. They would, you know, everything would fall in if he wasn't that like outward smarmy con artist kind of salesman guy. Casey, the- how dare you refer to Slimer as that ghost they catch at the hotel? Oh. <laughs> that, that, again, getting, that getting into the diegetic humor thing with Slimer is that before he became a cartoon mascot that sold juice to children, uh-huh. <laughs> Slimer is actually kind of freaky in this movie. Yeah, he's yeah, scary. He he's like this blob. He's disgusting. I mean, he's not like malicious in the way that like the devil dogs are in this mm-hmm. thing. But I mean, he's destroying property. He's downing all this wine. He's breaking people's hotel rooms. And I know this is, this is apocryphal, but I know that apparently, um, the people working on the crew and even the writers and director kind of privately referred to Slimer as the ghost of John Belushi. Yeah, that makes sense. That he really isn't trying to hurt anybody, but he will wreck your hotel room. Yeah. Well, the, the, the connection with Belushi was apt, right? Because, the original script that was penned by, of course, Dan Aykroyd, the yep. these ghost believer Dan Aykroyd, was called Ghost Mashers, and they were t- <laughs> they were time traveling, uh, dimension traveling oh, heroes who fought ghosts with magic wands. Yeah, and this mm-hmm. was the, that was to be the vehicle with him and John Belushi. So, it, like it, the, the connection, and also the connection with SCTV and Animal House. Um, is there for sure? But I mean, like the that's that's just part of the part and, of the lineage of it, I guess. Yeah, Harold Ramis came in as co-writer. They brought him in because they're like, "There's no way we can fucking film this because <laughs> right. the first ten minutes apparently had the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man in oh. it. So they just escalate it super yep. fast, and it was like, "There's no way we can make this movie." And so they instead of say, okay, let's ground it. It's not in the future. Let's do an origin story. And if we're going to have the Marshmallow Man, have it be the climax of the movie. Right. You got to build towards that. And actually, that's, again, with the diegetic humor is I think even though the the Marshmallow Man is ridiculous, it's basically a kaiju-sized, you know, mascot for for a snack food. And I think that's what kind of makes it work is that it's played totally straight. Yes. I that was my favorite part of the movie when I was a kid. This was like all anyone talked about with this movie because I saw this in the theater when it came out. Um, and uh, you know, before I saw it, people you know were nudging each other like the part with the marshmallow man, the part where like you know when when someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. Um, those those were the things I especially remember. Um, and then after I saw it, and ever since I have wanted there to be like a you know today the, today it would be like a, a web series called Choose the Form of the Destructor, where it's a different <laughs> one every week. And I, I wrote a few down just like. Some some things I would like to see destroy New York. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mr. Peanut would be great. <laughs> uh, 
somehow Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and a potter's wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) Postmodernism. That's that's all I got. Uh, I, oh. I, like, don't think of anything. Clear your mind. Yeah, right. What's so right. weird is I think if this movie had been made now, I think they would have dropped the ball on the Marshmallow Man. Probably. Because they would have hit the joke too hard, where I think this movie has a tendency to use what I refer to as the key and peel method of humor. Okay. Which is that you do something absurd, utterly absurd, but you treat it like you're in a drama film. Yeah. And let the situation speak for itself, that... A, a, a food mascot is trying to murder them and is stepping on buildings. You don't need to make it a joke. It's already a giant marshmallow guy in a sailor suit. Yeah. But he roars like he's fucking Godzilla. And there's that bit where he's like on fire and he's like half melted. And, <laughs> and it's just like, you know, this is a this is stupid, but my God, this would be terrifying. Yeah, I thought this was a very scary movie when I was nine. Uh, yeah. I, especially the library ghost, I thought was the scariest thing I had ever seen. Although when you see it now, you, it's, it's yeah. a little goofy. <laughs> it's, it's not scary. a little goofy. Uh, this is a, as far as filmmaking is concerned, sort of tonal, tonal or political things aside. I always feel like this is a fantastic uh, example of filmmaking that bridges practical and optical effects. So clearly, they were making an expensive movie. But it wasn't like a ridiculously expensive movie, you know. It wasn't a Gates of Heaven kind of movie. Um, wait, is that what it's called? What the fuck is that movie called? Uh, oh. Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. Gates of Heaven. Gates of Heaven is that the one about the pet? Yes, the pet right. um, They they would you know like the, at the beginning the card catalogs flying out all over the place and stuff. That's all practical stuff. They had so much of the of they were doing a special effects movie, right? Because the special effects had to sell the the ridiculous supernatural elements. But then of course that was sort of backdrop against them doing all the crazy optical ghosts and stuff. And they, it works really, really well together in the, in the, in the sort of blending of the two, they easily could have had a movie where there was lots and lots of blue screens and lots of optical effects, but they grounded it. And they could have had that stuff overtake the movie. And I think a lot of movies would have overtaken it, but they, they managed to keep a real dialogue based humor, character based humor, like strong writing. This is a movie that oh, also yeah. takes its mythology very seriously. Yeah. It's a movie that I think you could have cut the special effects budget in half and changed some plot elements and it still could have worked on those other things where it's not like leaning too hard on the special effects. The special effects just add to a wow factor yes. to a movie that's already working. And that's that's a part that I just I find so interesting is that it's balancing so many things that shouldn't work together and at this point in history the idea of a, a genre film mixed with a comedy, where it's almost a little bit horror, a little bit sci-fi. I mean, they really hadn't figured that out yet. I mean, that's what was so amazing about things like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon that yeah. were coming out at the same time. It's like, wow, they can be funny too. And it's kind of crazy because we don't appreciate how new this stuff was because this is a movie that we've seen since we were like five and yeah. we don't realize that there was a time that all action movies or genre films or horror films were like really stoic. Yeah. And they just they had one genre and they just like latched onto it. But this one kind of goes all over the place and manages to have funny moments, to have serious moments that like I mentioned diegetic humor. This mm-hmm. is a movie where the characters are funny and they tend to react to things. And the other thing is it doesn't do the what is the name of that guy that uh, writes all things like, you know, 40-Year-Old Virgin and 
Uh, Judd Apatow. Apatow. Yeah, Judd Apatow has a tendency to like, hey, let's just all riff, and we've yes. got a bunch of comedians on the movie. Wait, and- so there was a lot of riffing in this movie. There was a lot of a lot of the interplay between them uh, was imp- improvised. But the the people who are in the movie are the people who wrote it. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think what you're talking about is is kind of the the improv approach of saying like, you know, the the whole joke of improv is I want to see how a reasonable reasonable person would react to a ridiculous situation. Yeah. Um and that's and that's what they do over and over in this movie. But a lot of times the movies that do that sort of thing forget to have a plot too. Oh, sure. Or they forget to get exposition into what they're saying cuz they're too busy having right. fun. And I kind of love that where it only really feels like Venkman is riffing. But that feels like the Venkman character yes. rather than Bill Murray, you know, breaking the fourth wall all the time. Where it feels like this is a guy who doesn't take things seriously. This is a guy who's constantly ribbing people or conning people. And you can sort of see, one, why he can get away with it as long as he is, because he is genuinely really funny and charming. And he has that kind of, like, too cool for school, uh, eye-rolling kind of attitude about things. But he does have these serious moments that ground it as well. Yeah. There are two moments in the movie where Bill Murray – actually, three – where he's actually dead serious. And they're small, but they actually have impact. One of them is right before he gets slimed. He looks yes. genuinely freaked out. Like, he has no idea what to do. Uh, the second one is right before Will Atherton orders the guy from Con Ed to shut down the containment unit. Yep. That he drops the jokes, and he's just like, this is a moment where even Venkman understands the consequences of them shutting off a machine, which, as Egon says, is like dropping a bomb on the city. Yep. <laughs> and then the third one is when he thinks Dana's dead at the end. Uh-huh. Yeah. When that, that charred up, you know... You know, demon dog is sort of laying on its side before she breaks. And that's the other thing, too, is like most comedy movies wouldn't make breaking out of the dog as gross as they did. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty gross. It's just like this burnt carbon shell that you have to break out of. I mean, stuff like that, I think, makes it really work. And it also doesn't let the comedy overtake the movie. So uh, that scene where they shut down the containment unit, we, unit, which I think is kind of beautiful when uh, when all the, the ghosts are shooting out of the building, um, they play this song, and, and it, I was like, boy, this sounds like an 80s song I would have heard, but what is it? And then it's credited at the, uh, credited at the end as Magic, uh, performed by Mick Smiley. <laughs> like, Who the fuck is Mick Smiley? A thing I noticed <laughs> about the music of this movie in general is, of course, yes, everybody in the world knows the theme song, which is which is deservedly classic. Right. There are three songs in this movie that mention ghost busting in the song. Yes. It's, I mean, how was this a thing in the 80s in general that I'm not remembering, or was this unusual for there to be a lot of songs in the movie about the movie? I think it was a lot more common. You yeah. don't see it now. No. You kind of kind of go for something nowadays. It's kind of now like it's, it. Now it's music inspired by the film. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you'll have a song with, that has something in the chorus about flying when something is flying. Sure. But you're going to have a song about flying anyways that wasn't written for this. But uh, there are a lot of songs back in the day where the lyrics would just be them reading off the plot to the movie. Yeah, there's the song like those Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters came there, something up, <laughs> the, tearing town, up tearing the town, tearing up the town. <laughs> like, what is this? They are uh, literally. This is a a song that will not work in any other context. Right. Um, what I find the fascinating though about it is the you know the uh, Ray Parker Jr. Ghostbusters song that everybody knows who's never seen the movie. Uh, I wasn't aware of this, but. 
the being sued by Huey Lewis. Yes. Before I want a new du- drug, I think. Yes. Oh, you Not almost I want a new duck. That's, that's the weird Al version. I want a new drug because it's basically the same. Yeah. yeah it's the, the same song. And it was kept under wraps until the year 2000 when Huey Lewis was on some VH1 special about music of the 80s. And he violated the order of the agreement by mentioning that he was that there was a lawsuit about Ghostbusters, and that, so that he got countersued. But like it's like this, like it's like this thing. Or of course, it made it that that song was like the that song actually charted and was being played on the radio. Oh, How, yeah, like like that. I'm sure I'm sure that didn't happen very often back then when a song as goofy as the Ghostbusters was like, yeah, I want to buy the album so I can yeah. hear the Ghostbusters song. There's a lot of a weird history with this movie too because this is not actually the first property would be called Ghostbusters. There was right. a there was a TV show, I think it was in the sixties or is it the seventies? Seventies, I think. Yeah, it was in black and white, so it's probably just a budget thing. But it was two guys and a gorilla hunting down ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's it even gets weirder. So this movie gets made and I think they made some kind of payment or mm-hmm. something like, hey, we can still use the name that we want to use. Here's some cash. And then this movie comes out and is a massive hit. So Filmation buys the rights to the gorilla version of Ghostbusters and makes a cartoon. And then this version of Ghostbusters with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd goes, Nay, Columbia Pictures, this is making a ton of movie. Why don't we make a cartoon that they title The Real real Ghostbusters? Ghostbusters. (laughs) I watched both of those shows. (laughs) I love when the title of something implies that there's a fake Ghostbusters. (laughs) You know know the other movie song? Uh, Bat Dance. Yes. Yes. The Prince song. That was a number one hit. Okay. Yeah, we were still. Yeah, that's still the '80s, though. We're still contained yep. in the '80s. But then in the uh, Deep Blue Sea was the '90s, right? Yes. Uh, remember the the LL Cool J song from Deep Blue Sea? Deepest, it, deepest bluest. My head is like a shark's fin. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's amazing. Oh. I was just only thinking of the Seal Gotham City. Is it Seal who does the Gotham City song for the Batman and Robin? Soundtrack? I think so. Yeah, Kissed by a Rose. No, 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 no. I Kissed by a Rose. There's a song that's called Gotham yes. City, City of Life or something. It's like Gotham City, City of Life. But it seems like in general you get you get one of these, but Ghostbusters got at least three. <laughs> they got greedy. Yeah. yeah. They're like, no, there's two, there's more that we need to say musically about the act of busting ghosts. Yes. Well, I, I think what we haven't talked about is that I think for me, I mean, I, I'm born in a certain generation. Um it's probably the most iconic New York City movie. Yeah, yes. well, that comes to my like is of, as a depiction of New York of a fictional New York City, though. I mean, maybe except for apart from Taxi Driver or Devil's Advocate. I don't the, the extras in this movie are pretty nope. great. Yeah. The extras all kind of bring up that New Yorkness, like yes. that guy who has the carriage that Louis Tully is talking to his horse while he's possessed. Yes. He and he's him just, an asshole. Yeah, yeah that, that's, <laughs> right. that is such a great New York moment where this guy is possessed and talking about the coming apocalypse and stumbles off into the park. And this is not the first time this guy in New York City who just has a carriage and is just trying to make a living <laughs> has seen this kind of shit. It's yeah. usually just a homeless guy. Or when they go into the hotel uh, and the and the guy waiting for the elevator says, who are you supposed to be? <laughs> Some <laughs> kind of cosmonaut? <laughs> right. what yeah. is, is, it, does, it does have that uh, – my brother-in-law, is, uh, he lived in New York for a long time. And he's like, well, the thing about living in New York – did you ever live in New York, Matthew? Yes. You did. Is And you can confirm or deny this, is that you're just surrounded by people all of the time. Yep. All of the time. All the time. Until you can you know, hurry home and put yourself in a sanctuary of your apartment. Um and that's why you kind of everyone's so colorful and on top of each other and and high strung. And I, this movie totally sells it. Like everything seems alive. Like the the city does seem alive with with 
with there's New tons Yorkers. of people in it, but there's this kind of cynicism and this sort of like I've seen some weird shit. Oh yeah, yeah. Like this if is... there was real ghost busting going on, most New Yorkers would be like, eh, <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's just another crazy asshole. Right. Over there. But again, the guy in the carriage, what an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and the same time, the people in the the restaurant on the green that see Louis <laughs> oh, Tully, yeah, yeah. they're just gonna. Like, Oh, okay. This was interesting for a couple seconds. Right. But you know what? I'll see something like that tomorrow. Which is why the part at the end where everybody is waiting at the at the uh, bottom of the building for the Ghostbusters to, to live or die um, and save save New York or not didn't quite ring true to me because I think most of those people would have shown up and then be like, eh, like, this is taking too long. I'm going home. <laughs> this kind of <laughs> plays back into something Casey and I have talked about on this show before. It's been a long time since we've dragged this up, but now it's suddenly pertinent to the topic. Which is, what is the reputation of the Ghostbusters oh, to yeah. the people of New York? That is a good question. Because they, they're clearly celebrities. They're appearing on the covers of, of magazines. They're on TV shows. Oh, my God. I love that, that montage. That montage is amazing. The, which you would never see the montage in, a, in any recent movie because no. you'll never have newspaper headlines no. to tell you, tell you what's happening in the I don't story. think you get Larry King nowadays no. either. That was a standby <laughs> Larry montage. Larry King, Casey Kasem, and a newspaper montage. Mm-hmm. That fucking dates this movie. Yeah, now it'd be some fucking YouTube guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What what does PewDiePie think about the Ghostbusters? (laughs) Something racist. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But yeah, the the part that I I was kind of getting at is that these are guys who... No, they would have Neil deGrasse Tyson on CNN. Neil deGrasse Tyson and Anderson Cooper are the Mm -hmm. new Larry King in movies. But I would say that um, these are guys that drive around New York, apparently running lights with a siren, (laughs) and they've got blue lights on top of this. This modified uh, ambulance that they're driving. deputized, maybe? <laughs> so the, the real question is, how do you respond if suddenly the Ecto-1 is in your rearview mirror and it's blaring a siren? Are you required to pull over to the side of the road? Or do they just take advantage of the fact that most people go, oh, shit, and just pull over when they see that? Oh, yeah. It's definitely legal to, to put a siren on any vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, make their own, they make their own siren sounds. Oh, yeah. So, they, so the Ecto-1 has a very right. unique, non-standard siren sound. Oh, in sound. that case, it's okay. Yeah. It sounds right. kind of British. It's kind of like, yep, yep. Well, you know, you can, you can have a flashing light on your car. It just can't be emergency colors, right? So yeah, if you wanted sure. to have a flashing purple light on your car i assume it's street legal. i mean they're Maybe. designed to look like an emergency vehicle uh-huh. i mean everything about it says you should pull over i guess it is it is white and red yeah yeah so like an ambulance and i mean at the same time though are most of the things that they deal with actually emergencies because <laughs> i mean i might be really upset that there is like a raccoon in my attic mm-hmm. and i might want animal tro- control to get out there but i don't think animal control can make other people pull over so they can get to my house faster <laughs> well i mean it's sort of is it a difference of degree or a difference of kind between a raccoon and a slimer yeah i, I mean that's that's the question mm. i think does there does it cross some line into into emergency territory if you had like 70 raccoons <laughs> 70 raccoons <laughs> how they... many raccoons is one slimer equivalent to is what i'm asking and where is the raccoon emergency line yeah, it's just, it's so bonkers, because I imagine there'd be a lot of New Yorkers who go, oh, this asshole again, I'm not oh, pulling yeah. over. But, I mean, probably there are a lot of people who think that about a real ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so weird, though, because at the end of the movie, you actually see them with a police escort to get to that building. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I... And I, the I, National I, Guard. <laughs> given yes. their disdain for the EPA regulations and the fact that, as Venkman said, they have unlicensed nuclear accelerators on their back. That's true. Um, I'm guessing that for most of this movie, they have essentially been running people off the road. 
Oh yeah, I, I think the Ghostbusters committed a lot of murders. Yeah, <laughs> like, and maybe maybe they got pardoned for them at the end, like always happens in a Fast and Furious film. Yeah. I kind of got that impression that yeah. the exchange for saving the world from monsters uh, that essentially they'd let them out of jail for their building exploding. Mm-hmm. They got they got like a license to kill. Yeah, so <laughs> that's that's the other thing I was thinking about is just the world of the Ghostbusters living in this world, and I actually found the website that. My tax dollars is helping to pay for, but I use for the stupidest of reason, which is the U.S. Uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics website, <laughs> and they have an inflation calculator. Uh-huh. And I was trying to figure out oh, how I much. I thought you were going to look up like uh, employment prospects for ghost busting. Yes. Oh, ghost extermination. Right. Yes. Speaking of which, that's one of the things I looked up: employment prospects. <laughs> because uh, at one point in the movie, when they're fighting the Elder God and they're about to cross the streams and try a really stupid plan to defeat. Gozer, uh-huh. um, Winston Zedmore actually lists off what his his salary is. He says this job is not worth eleven five a year. Wait, so, really? He says that? Yeah, yeah. eleven five a year ah. is what Winston Zedmore makes to fight elder gods. Oh my god! You can't live in Manhattan on eleven thousand dollars. No, a year. so I'm thinking that part of his his job has got to be room and board at the firehouse because there's think so, no yeah. way he could commute in and off of off of that island. Especially if you're supposed to be essentially on call all the time. Oh, yeah. Do they establish whether or not Winston has a wife and children or not? I don't know. I it mean, didn't, it doesn't seem like I it. Don't, I don't remember Ghostbusters too well enough he to know. Got, he got that job from an ad in the paper, right. evidently. <laughs> so, and he's the only Speaking one who showed up. This movie. Um, let's talk a little more about Winston because, because Winston is, is you know, allowed to be sort of the forgotten Ghostbuster. Um, oh. And he, he is so much better than I remember. Yeah. Uh, like, he gets you know, a lot of great lines. He gets a lot of great lines. He, he, you know, he lights up the screen anytime he's on. I mean, Ernie Hudson is a treasure. Uh, and uh, he, he's just fun to watch. And like, he's the only one who's a nice guy. Kind of. <laughs> he's he grounds them. Yeah, in a lot of ways. He's the conscience. He's the one that has to talk to regular people sometimes yep. when things have escalated and Venkman won't stop doing shtick. Yep. <laughs> um, I kind of love his interview scene with Janine. It's one of the best scenes <laughs> oh, yes, in the movie, yes. where. He looks if just. If there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything, anything you says. say. <laughs> Where he looks just so what the fuck look on his face yep. while Janine is listing off all these things like ESB, you know, transdimensional travel, um, Loch Ness monster, Loch Ness monster, <laughs> and the theory of Atlantis, UFOs, and he just looks like what? And even Janine looks so bored. <laughs> she, I think both of them are not taking this terribly seriously. Well, and I like how his his look is like. I'm not sure what the right answer to this question is for the purpose of this job interview. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Winston is actually pretty great. I think he's a bit underutilized. I would have wanted oh, a for bit sure. more yeah. Winston. When you saw that scene of him and Ray driving in Acto 1, and oh. they're basically having a conversation. So clearly Winston's filter, his lens through which to view this is biblical because he starts yeah. talking about – he starts talking about the apocalypse and, and revelation, um, and then, but he makes the. This is a great bit of dialogue too, because he makes the great bit of point about if it's the end of the world, the dead are rising, and he's saying, "Oh, well, wait, the ghosts have been steadily rising since we've even started," and, and he kind of like blows Ray away a little bit yeah. by making that, and it kind of blows the audience away too, because you're like, "Why didn't we have more of Winston?" That is my favorite scene in the movie. Really? Yeah. That is my all-time favorite scene in the movie, and I could watch it a thousand times because it's a quiet, serious mm-hmm. moment that builds the stakes for the climax. Yeah. It gives Winston a moment where he gets to sort of step up and throw his input in and actually manages to knock Ray off of his footing. That Ray is sort of caught up in this 
this blueprint of the building and he turns it from a, a religious conversation. You can sort of see it that at first Ray isn't listening and that's what's kind of great because he keeps talking about the blueprints because the first thing he asks Ray is like, hey, Ray, do you believe in God? And he says, never met him. Yep. <laughs> and he sort of leads into sort of the, the question of revelation and then Ray knows some of his scripture and stuff like that and he's like, uh, this is looking pretty bad. And he takes it, he takes it from a, a mythological place into a place that Ray understands uh-huh. and it sort of sets up we're possibly dealing with an apocalypse here. And Ray's reaction, which is quiet, there's no joke. He just kind of, how about some music? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that as a way to end that scene. Um, it's just a scene with them not being funny, not goofing around. Uh, but they're just kind of like just coming back from a job. Yeah. They've got some slime on them. Ray's drinking a beer while looking at blueprints while in a passenger seat. And Winston's smoking. Like, yeah, I, I will say that the consumption of substances is is a, a charming part about this, is that, like, giving Ray giving Egon a candy bar as a treat, and there's just, like, <laughs> potato chips and Cheez-Its yep. and, like, Coke cans everywhere all over the place. Uh-huh. It's like a bachelor pad. The, yeah. the, the, where, the, the firehouse that they live in must really smell. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Even even though they somehow were able to fix it up in a, over 24 hours from, like, uh, you know, a terrifying crime scene to a pretty nice place. Speaking of those transformations, that's my thing that I love about Ray, and I think why ultimately Ray is my favorite Ghostbuster, is that Ray is not a dummy. Ray has the heart of a child in a lot of Uh ways. And if you notice in the movie, he is responsible for all of their major purchases. (laughs) (laughs) That every single instance, it's because it's cool. Yeah. Well, he's also the funding, too. He he mortgages his parents' house. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Egon says to him, for your information, in the first five years, the interest rate comes to (laughs) $95,000. I love that Egon just has no no filter. He's just going to sort of lay it out there. You see, Ray's just like, oh, my God, I'm financially destroyed. So I think that's kind of why they put up with him making these purchases like the firehouse. And what I love is they always list off why this is a bad choice. Like Egon saying, this building should be condemned. Uh-huh. And then for Ray, all that matters is the pole. And the same with the car. And what I love about the car is that Ray is the one that lists off the thousands and thousands yes. of dollars of repairs <laughs> that need to be done. But it just looks cool. Right. It's like, we, I mean, we have to have this hearse. Yeah. I love it. I I love that part about him, that he's the one that does that. And there's these little quiet moments with Egon where the final arbiter is always going to be Peter, who signs off on it. But you see yep. the totally crestfallen Egon, who's just like, this is what I got to <laughs> work with. Why is Venkman allowed to be the final arbiter? Why, of all of the four guys, I would put him last. Uh, sir, yeah, I think he just bullies his way yeah, past yeah. it. Yeah, he's the, the mouth. No. They're not gonna. They're not gonna fight with him because they know it's not worth it. Right. They've clearly gone through this with him a thousand times. The uh, firehouse was my favorite joke in the in the 2016 Ghostbusters, where they look go to look at the firehouse to see if uh, if that can be their Ghostbusting HQ, and they're like, "This place is thirty two thousand dollars a month." <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so I actually, again, getting back to that question of money. I looked up what does Winston make in oh, today's right. money. Oh, sorry, right. I, I derailed no, that story. No, and we're no. back. And we're gentlemen. back. So <laughs> I, I plugged this in there, and I was like, "Okay, how much does this guy actually make?" Um, I will say this slightly less than I do. <laughs> he makes about twenty-seven thousand three hundred and seventy-one dollars a year, and then I said, "Okay, what is that hourly?" 
Oh, no. And I, I did some calculations. Thirteen fifteen an hour oh, is what, what Winston makes oh. to be a Ghostbuster, probably Yikes. including room and board and some food mm-hmm. at the firehouse. And th- that's not even Bernie Sanders' money, <laughs> let alone think- <laughs> money that you need to do to fight an elder god. <laughs> what do you think Venkman makes? Oh, more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think he's also a co-owner, uh-huh. and he probably makes he's merchandise money. that shit? Yeah. I think, I think Winston is just the guy who just punches a clock. Yeah, yeah, and you know he's he's not building equipment or anything like that. Venkman has an apartment outside of of the building. Who else can afford an apartment in? in uh, apparently, Dana Barrett, who has an amazing apartment for somebody <laughs> for, who's a symphony musician, right? Yeah. Right. I'm less, that is the most hilariously '80s New York job. It certainly is. I'm a musician in the orchestra at um, Lincoln Center. <laughs> the only other thing they could do if she wasn't a cellist, she would be a ballet dancer. Or if you wanted to take it down to more real, she'd be a, like a dancer in the Rockettes. Uh, That'd you be re- the way you'd do it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> do you remember the movie Electric Dreams? Did you see no. this? No. It's a very bad movie <laughs> about like a computer that falls in love with Virginia Madsen, basically. <laughs> and in that movie, Virginia Madsen is also a cellist, I believe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just like, we don't know what to do with this character. Let's give them a cello. Because realistically, Dana Barrett should be making less money than Winston. Absolutely. That she should be basically living in an alley somewhere, or at least having a nine-to-five job so she can afford to be a cellist. Yes. So the other one I tried to figure out is how much does it cost to hire the Ghostbusters in today's money? Good question. They, it was five grand that they threw at the uh, the hotel manager of the Sedgwick. And what I kind of love about that is that the hotel manager never asked. <laughs> <laughs> right. The well, it was an emergency. It was yes. a seventy raccoon level emergency. And you're just you like, just make you call nine one one. Like they, they're like, do you want police, fire, ambulance, or Ghostbuster? So in today's money, it would cost you just under twelve thousand dollars to hire the Ghostbusters. Winston wow. cannot afford to hire himself. Oh no. So I, what I kind of love about this is that it's just like that is insane. And is that enough? Is this, it's like, for instance, I was in Seattle probably about a year and a half ago on 45th Street, and I realized there was an accordion store there. Yeah, Potosa. And I was like, holy crap, can this thing support itself on a major street? This is like yeah. right off of I 5. And I'm like, there is a dedicated fan base of people who individually pay a ton of money themselves to keep this place afloat. And I'm like, what is the equivalent of that from the Ghostbusters? Are there poor people that just aren't having their ghosts busted? That, that's a good question. Like, are there enough Ghostbusters to go around? Like, should New York City yeah. have established a department of ghost busting? Manhattan is huge. How, yes. could, how could one are team these, of guys? Are they going to remain just like this small private business? It seems like you'd have to at some point, because, especially in the aftermath of something like, you know, a giant marshmallow man crushing the city, is that you've got to at least team up with the city to be a, essentially like an ambulance, that you're a private company, but you contract with the city for something. Yeah, So for that sure. you can get called in when somebody calls like 911. I say nationalize the fucking Ghostbusters. <laughs> Venkman would not like that. No. Venkman is clearly <laughs> in this for the rights. money. Isn't that, wasn't that going to be the plot of Ghostbusters 3? Wasn't that it was going to be about a franchise in another city? It's, that's the way it was going to start? It could be good sure. if you did it that way. I mean, if you're going to spin it off. But I think it's just better that Ghostbusters 3 was never made. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a good well, after, thing. That never would have been good. After one guy died, whatever his yeah. name was. Ramus. Can Carol? I? Yes. Uh, can I tell a little story about the Marshmallow Man? Oh uh, yes. So that sort of sort of spoiled the story. But um, a f- couple years ago, I was uh, I was in Tokyo and I was having uh, dinner with um, this uh, movie producer that I know, Shinya Agawa, and uh, and his wife Etsuko Agawa, and uh, 
uh, Etsuko Igao is this, uh, you know, kind of quiet, like 60 something Japanese woman and, um, and asked, you know, like, what do you do? She said, Oh, I, I work in, uh, um, like, uh, makeup for motion pictures. Um, Ooh. and I'm like, Oh, that, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Like, I don't know what that, what that means exactly. Like, you know, you know, are you like applying makeup to actors before they go on set? Um, and uh, and Shinya Shinya's like, um, oh yeah, she's worked on a lot of stuff. Um, and uh, and Etsuko's like, yeah, I I, um, I worked on the Marshmallow Man for Ghostbusters, for example. <gasps> what? And oh. I went on IMDb, and she she is right there. That's awesome. Um, and so then so we're like, okay, we want to hear more about this. And she uh, invited us to her her uh, makeup and effects studio at the uh, Toho Studios lot. No way. And uh, it was incredible. Like you know, <laughs> we got to see like corpses that had been handmade by Etsuko Agawa and her and her team. Uh, that's fantastic. Yes. Oh man. And it's and it's that's kind of shit that makes it that's more endearing than if it were just be to be created by a CGI artist from Poland or whatever, right. you know, yeah. like by a team of 150 people. They it, the, the model work in this with the marshmallow man yeah. is pretty great mm-hmm. because it is a it's a person in a costume walking around a fake oh, yeah. city. Well, I mean to, to put it to put it li- not not so lightly, I mean some of the optical effects about the building are terrible. Oh, like oh, yeah, some yeah. of them they look like direct to video sort of but stuff. But there's there's terrible charming the, and there's terrible jarring. But the yes. building itself, especially the set that's at the crown of the building is awesome. Oh. Like it's really, it's really, it's apparently, really, it's really good. It's and one of the biggest sets that was ma- made in Hollywood at that time. The uh, the devil dogs are both great and terrible. As long as they are not moving, they are amazing. I think like <laughs> their faces are very expressive. They're yeah. kind of like cute and scary at the same time. As soon as they like jump across a street, like what am I watching? <laughs> Well, I mean, oh. when we were doing our escape plan um, podcast, La Vista Baby, we were talking about the prison, and one thing that the movie lacked was that the prison itself, because it was about this supermax, mm-hmm. you know, impossible to do, to break out of prison, the prison needed to be a character in and of itself in the movie. Oh, yeah. And for this movie, certainly the prison, or excuse me, the building, Dana Barrett's building is a character, even down to... Ray discussing the paranormal history of the construction of the building I had in the 19th forgotten. century. You know, oh. like it's like, and of course, the fact that the building literally parts of the building come alive. You know, they yeah. become a it becomes a portal. But I also love uh, Egon's reaction after they've just climbed up like thirty flights of stairs. He just goes, huh, "Art Deco, very nice." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I, I kind of love little things That's like good. that. Those are the little organic mm-hmm. bits that make that movie. That and then that big heroic scene where they've just kind of been sucked down into this sinkhole in front of the building, and yeah. the heroic music is playing, people chanting their name. They go right into the building, and it's like smash cut to them on the stairs, <laughs> yes. out of breath, oh. in, in an impossibly tall stairwell. You know, and it's like, yeah, all the power is out. Yes. Of course it is. <laughs> but I, I love that. I love that it just kind of takes the piss at that moment. Yeah, that it it never undermines the stakes of the movie. But it manages to have fun with it. That these things are still scary, even if they're weird. Like Lewis Tully throwing that coat into his bedroom and it landing on the devil dog's head. Loved it. Where it's sort of like he doesn't notice it, and then people's reaction to it is like, "Oh, there's a bear in the apartment." I love Dana's refrigerator. Oh yeah. <laughs> like I, I wanted to. I wanted to see more about that. It. They really. I. I think they make it work. The movie. The moments in the movie that are supposed to be serious work, and the moments that are supposed to be funny work. And like when Dana gets possessed, that's like a scene from Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. The, there is some. There are some legit scary. A few of them, a legit scary scenes that would rival any of the other any of the classic sort of horror movies from the seventies or the eighties. But certainly Dana Barrett's being grabbed by her chair mm-hmm. and oh, then yeah. dragged into the kitchen. 
um, was is is actually pretty pretty frightening. It's yeah, actually okay. the one moment in the real just like oh fuck that's terrifying. Oh yeah, and, and she sells it. Sigourney Weaver yeah. nails that scene where it just there is nothing funny about it. No, and that it also lets it be creepy. The movie is allowed to be creepy and not just Fankman. Uh huh. Another thing that's creepy is Dan Aykroyd getting a blowjob from a ghost. Oh yeah, <laughs> he's I can't wearing, believe we've gotten this far without discussing. No, he's wearing this. like an admiral's jacket. What's the deal with that? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> the story that I have heard about that is that was originally a scene of them doing a job at some castle. Okay, and they cut it out, but they're like, let's just make that a dream. Okay, yeah, it's, that, it it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Nope. Getting ghost blowjobs. Ghost blowjobs. I, I uh, it's bizarre. Oh, yeah. I just didn't know what the fuck was going on. Why he had his? He clearly had his uh, his suit on, but he's got like the fringy shoulder pads from like a Napoleonic <laughs> epaulets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. I call them the Captain Crunch shoulders. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's it's a movie that I think um, gets better when you rewatch it and you notice things in it. It's not a movie that. We've talked about this before. Movies that it's like, okay, I got everything out of it that I need I need to see. I'm moving on now. Like, I enjoyed Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. but I'm probably never going to watch Doctor Strange again. Did you notice, um, I think this was the first time I noticed this, having seen this movie many times, uh, that uh, when Dana gets home to her apartment the first time, uh, she puts a bag of Stay Puft marshmallows yes. on the counter? Yeah. Oh, yes. I love that. Yep, I mean, a lot it. of movies could have, I mean, that's a little touch that sort of primes the pump for you know, the Stay Puft Marshmallow yeah. Man. It's got a picture of the Marshmallow Man on yep. him. The little little details like that, I think, really sell the world that it's in. That New York feels like a thing. It isn't just like random, random city that just has large buildings and we can just throw them anywhere where you could be Boston, you could be um, Atlanta. It doesn't matter. It's just – but this one is so specifically New York and has that vibe about it. Like the mayor. What I, I love is that yeah. ultimately the thing that changes the mayor's mind – and gives them a chance to save the city and also get out of prison. Is Venkman appealing to the guy's self-interest? It uh-huh. isn't. I mean, they throw everything out there. Everyone around him is like the walls of the thirty-third precinct are bleeding. <laughs> there are fires. People are being attacked all over the city. It's mass hysteria. But the thing that ultimately changes the mayor's mind is pointing out that you're saving the lives of millions of registered voters. Yep. <laughs> that is such a wonderful New Yorkish sort uh-huh. of thing that that ultimately we're all selfish pricks. But what are you going to do? I mean it, it it's it makes sense cuz this is a great depiction of like a pre-Giuliani sort of Gordon Gecko era Reagan like Reagan era uh New York where it's you know it's cutthroat as it is anyways. I mean my god, it's a this is a movie about three guys starting a small business, right? And chafing yes. against regulation. That's the fucking <laughs> this is the movie, right? This it's it's a it's a rags to riches Horatio Alger story set uh-huh. during the Reagan years in Gordon Gecko's New York. That's <laughs> So the the question I also have here is that since the the rise of their ability to make money cuz jobs keep coming in that they're so busy that Janine wants them to hire more help, which by the way they never do. They never do. Oh god. <laughs> she I don't think she has days off, but um it's tied to Gozer in some way that there's this ramping up because oh, I Gozer's see where you're going. there. So now that Gozer's gone, that they've sent Gozer back into the great beyond, is business just going to tank? Oh, this is like when I worked uh, uh, temporary holiday work uh, at uh, at a kitchen supply store a few years ago, <laughs> and like you know, every day leading up to Christmas, it was it was just crazy, like bonkers in the store every day, and then like December twenty sixth, like. Ghost Town. Because the next day is going to be like H&R Block on April 16th. Exactly. That's it. Where it's just like, 
uh, do we even turn the lights on? Do we even open? Mm-hmm. It's it's seasonal work. It's, it's seasonal. seasonal work. Yes, because you have to battle all those holiday ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> and who did they build the city for defeating Gozer? Like who who hired them for this exactly? I don't know. It's it's so weird because. I imagine, again, this is getting back to Fast and the Furious, I imagine this was an exchange for a pardon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that this was just like, oh, hey, we understand that you blew up a, a building and that you really do have really dangerous equipment that you're carrying around. Who knows what's in your basement? That Peck was probably right about a lot of that. Peck does make up that whole sense and nerve gases bullshit. Yeah. That he's really just reaching for ways to get after Venkman. That at first he cared about the environment. Now he just wants to fuck over this one guy who uh-huh. was a dick to him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think that you know there has to be some kind of regulation. But this movie is kind of ultimately a hey, they're main characters. You got to trust them. Right. So uh, so Ghostbusters, come come on over here. We're we're pardoning you for everything, uh, all of your crimes related to ghostbusting activity. However, Venkman, you're still on the hook for several counts of sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's he's clearly a repeat case because remember uh-huh. the graffiti on the office door at the beginning. Oh yeah, yeah. Again, burn, burn in hell, Venkman. Is that yeah, what it is? it's it's this is a guy yeah, who you is you a don't repeat. Know if that's, if that's just because he's shocking people and he enjoys mm-hmm. it, or if it's because he's stealing people's girlfriends, or both. Uh, probably both. Yeah. I, by the way, the, the guy at the beginning who's getting shocked was a, is a terrific character actor. Oh, like, yes. He was on screen for 90 seconds, and he's hilarious. The, the Where he gets shocked and the gum comes out of his <laughs> yes. mouth, and he picks it back up and puts it in his yes. mouth again. <laughs> My uh, five bucks. <laughs> yeah, five dollars. <laughs> Who knows how long this guy has been shocked? Uh-huh. Remember, you only have seventy-five, 75 more to go. <laughs> yeah, and he's probably been there for like an hour. That poor guy. <laughs> yeah, and but that's what's kind of interesting about Venkman. Why do they keep him around if he doesn't? I mean, he's handy with a proton blaster, but. He's not going to do any of the real legwork. And when there's scenes that they have to throw out exposition and come up with a plan, Venkman's usually fucking around uh-huh. and occasionally has a little bit of insight. But most of the time, he's really just useful at the busting part, but a lot less so when it comes to any of the actual other work that they do or understanding what they do. Or caring. Yeah. At the beginning, it's almost like he doesn't believe in ghosts. Oh, Definitely. Like he doesn't really give a shit about his actual job. No, and he found he he's he's the type of guy who found a an area of study in higher education where there's nothing to it, and so he could just skate along without actually producing anything. Right. right. That was the that was his whole idea. Right. The, the subtext behind it is psychic psychic powers and ghosts don't exist, so I don't actually need to produce anything, which is why the dean threw them out. Right. Mm-hmm. He's just like, well, your conclusions don't mean anything. Your research doesn't go anywhere. Because Venkman doesn't believe that they exist. Maybe this is just a symptom of me getting old, but I tend to notice more and more when those crusty, wet blanket characters come into movies that they tend to have a point. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Like they're they're. We should defend the parapsychology lab at Columbia. <laughs> I I fully support the dean in what in throwing them out. Oh where yeah, I'm like these of guys are frauds. That the only thing they had at that point was the PKE meter. Uh-huh. Right. That was pretty much the only thing they built that worked. That this mostly just them wasting <laughs> the tuition money of all of these kids. Uh, basically so that one of their guys, the, the creepy Lothario guy, can pick up nineteen year old girls. And the other t- and also in the in the process of picking up nineteen year old r- girls, skewing the results of all of their scientific studies to make them useless. To be fair, I think you have accurately described a lot of real university departments. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh Venkman. 
All right, so we can just we can uh, we can wrap it up here. But I guess the last question is: even after so many years, is Ghostbusters still worth our time to watch, or worth your time as the? As oh the God, viewer? absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is a movie that, despite the fact that there's little '80s tropes that clearly haven't aged as well as others, it's a near perfect movie. That this is a movie that managed to be a thing that I loved when I was six. And then I see it again as an adult, and it doesn't completely destroyed by the fact that I am an adult and am looking at things like an adult. That it's far funnier than I thought it was. That the mythology is far more interesting and weird. Certainly uh, compared to a lot of the stuff that was coming out at the time. Um, the fact that you're kind of getting into weird cultish type, almost Lovecraftian kind of backstory to what is essentially a movie starring people from Saturday Night Live. Um, I think that the movie takes itself seriously, except when the characters don't. And that the more that I watch it, the more that I find in it. And the stuff that I find aren't flaws that are like, okay, that's a plot hole. You know, like I've seen in a lot of movies that I love, I'll find bits of like, oh, okay, that doesn't work. But the fact that I've been distracted for 30 years about it is a sign that it doesn't matter. Where I think with Ghostbusters, the fact that, like we mentioned before, when Venkman is quoting prices to the hotel manager, He's clearly being fed numbers by Egon, and that's something I didn't notice until about five years ago. And it was pointed out by the director's commentary on it. Nice. Mm. And that's the sort of stuff where knowing that and seeing that, and that was kind of subtle, but seeing it now, it adds so much to both of their characters. So that's stuff where those little bits of detail, and then the scenes that aren't necessarily the iconic ones that are going to make it into a, you know, a, a demo reel for this movie are some of the best. Again, my favorite scene is uh, Ray and Winston in the car, just talking about the stakes of the movie and setting a serious tone so that you can sort of carry over into that climax. And a lot of movies nowadays that want to be funny are sort of afraid to have those quiet moments. Like, they don't want to waste yeah. your time with serious stakes. They just want to kind of have their actors fuck around a lot, which is why most comedies nowadays, to me, are kind of unwatchable. Hmm. So I'd say if you haven't seen Ghostbusters 1984, you should go see it. Yeah. You absolutely should go see it. What about you? Is it, I, I, it sounds like there's some, some problematic elements. I am on the fence. Oh, so I, okay. think, I think I would have said everything that you, that you just said, Mike, before, before re-watching it. However, having rewatched it the other day, sort of in in the the Harvey Weinstein era, mm. I felt like you know there was still a lot about this movie to love, but I really hated these guys. <laughs> like they they reminded you know I could not turn off the fact that they reminded me so much of people both in public life and in my personal life that are genuine assholes, and. You know, I would like to be able to kind of set that aside and and uh, say, you know, like ninety percent of you know everything else in this movie is is terrific, good, clean fun. But I was <laughs> not, I was not totally able to do that, despite the fact that there was a, a great little appearance by Reginald Bell Johnson, who we also didn't oh, mention, yeah. also oh, playing yeah. a cop again. Yes, <laughs> because the the most distinctive voice. Um, so I mean, yeah, you definitely, if you haven't seen Ghostbusters, you need to see Ghostbusters. So it's worth your time in that sense. I I was just not able to to sit back and enjoy it on a on a uh, pure fun level in the way I was hoping to and in the way I was able to just a few years ago. Hmm. Well, I mean, I I think I'll just take it from a more ten thousand foot level, mm -hmm. which is like for f movie making, especially for iconic American blockbusters, um, Ghostbusters is 
should be part a basic part of a lexicon for talking about movies, especially sort of big ticket action movies or big, excuse me, big ticket comedies. And I think what's just so special about it is that it is a comedy that uh, you know the the, well, the other top grossing movie that year. I think that beat it was Beverly Hills Cop or uh-huh. whatever, which is basically a an eighties buddy cop movie. That's you know, even though it has Eddie Murphy in it, it's still it's still fairly light on the comedy, right? It's just mm-hmm. it's just Eddie Murphy riffing, doing what would what could be Lethal Weapon, you yeah. know. Um, something about this feels special, even from the outset. If you just think about the how iconic the production design is, the way that their uniforms look, the way that the proton packs look, the, the way that the car looks, the Ghostbusters logo, which was apparently made by like a tattoo artist or like that's that Ivan Reitman knew or something like that, um, like. Everything fits into place so well um, that it's this. It's a. It is now kind of a blueprint for when you want to make a genre mix comedy, like high uh, high concept magical. What do they call the heightened reality sort uh-huh. of comedy? Um, that now is is referenced endlessly. So if you haven't seen it, then you are impoverished because you're not understanding where things come from. There are certainly parts of that are so dated as to be painful and. Uh, that sort of may take you aback a little a little bit about it. However, I will say that like it's has some great classic, funny, amazing moments, and you 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 shouldn't shouldn't go without it for mm-hmm. sure. No, no, definitely. So Matthew Amster Burton, I just want to thank you again for joining us on this episode. Well, thank you. I will come back anytime. And if folks want to find out more about you and what you're working on, plug something. What are you doing these days? All right. So I have a podcast called Spilled Milk that you can find on iTunes or wherever or at spilledmilkpodcast.com, which is a comedy food podcast. I uh, I have a, another comedy podcast that is sort of a parody book club show uh, that is called Look Inside This Book Club. And I just launched a new podcast called I'm, Hidden Jukebox. Oh, I'm so excited. Which is all about uh, great albums of the 90s that my friend Laura Lowe and I are hosting. Oh, that sounds great. Hope you do a lot of MC Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> we, it, uh, went, so Hammer was like... Did he, he had 89. One, it was 89. One album that hit, hit the 90s, though, right? Like... Both both MC Hammer and where's way of our field. Both Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer were both eighty nine. Eighty nine. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. It's, wah, it's wah, wah. we're gonna have to do like a a Hammer comeback album, I guess. <laughs> so thanks again. Uh, Thank and, you. And if you like what we do, please do consider giving to us on patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or on radio versus the Martians dot com a dollar a month. Maybe even a little bit more. We'll get you access to exclusive episodes available only on Patreon. Thank you so much, folks. We'll catch you next month. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Harry, do you believe in God? Never met him. Yeah, well, I do. And I love Jesus' style, you know. This roof cap is made of a magnesium tungsten alloy. 
What are you so involved with that? These are the blueprints for the structural ironwork in Dana Barrett's apartment building, and they're very, very strange. Hey, Ray, do you remember something in the Bible about the last days when the dead would rise from the grave? I remember Revelation 7:12. And I looked as he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, and the moon became as blood, and the seas boiled, and the skies fell. Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Every ancient religion has its own myth about the end of the world. Myth? Ray, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason we've been so busy lately is because the dead have been rising from the grave? How about a little music? Yeah.